0: Has Roger Smith RSVP'd yet? Wall Street I went to Wall Street to get seriously rich but I didn't get rich. Hollywood Boulevard. I went to Hollywood to be a movie mogul. I didn't become a movie mogul. Washington D.C. The president and Mrs. Ford have invited us down to Palm Springs. He's been there. I the entertainment business. Done that. Being hired by a company called Carolco Pictures. And that. Was the night before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And just
1: about everything else you can imagine. I
0: thought of myself as somebody who was a double agent. He knew a lot of famous My people. experience with Orson Welles or How can you possibly hang out with that low-life Frank Sinatra? And now he's talking. Of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. This is the podcast. Who the f- is Roger Smith? But my real goal was to have an interesting life surrounded by interesting people, and at that, I succeeded beyond my expectations. All
1: right, sports fans, Roger has some great memories of some great athletes. Oh, and he's got some advice about betting on the horses. Soccer? Roger had an office next to Pele, but we begin in the boxing ring.
0: It's, I'm going to go with. 1959, and my father and I, and my mother and sister, are in New York, and there is a boxing match. Mm, I was at, afraid this is where was going. At, at Yankee Stadium between Sugar Ray Robinson and Carmen Basilio. And my father, he didn't do anything unless he had an edge. He wouldn't, the idea of buying a ticket and sitting in the grandstands, never. But he knew a guy who got us working past press tickets, and we sat, we were literally right behind the first row of sports writers at the edge of the thing, so much so that I watched people, not me, get blood splashed on them in one of the most bloody, violent fights. I believe it was the first one in which sugar ray robinson beat basilio and then afterwards there was a rematch in which basilio clobbered robinson i think that's how i remember it but um you know i was used to watching boxing on gillette's friday night uh, look sharp be sharp uh, telecast and i didn't realize there was actual blood coming off these people and f- going far enough to get to the audience i mean the the, the, the stands it was really it, it, I said no thanks no never again boxing.
1: Do you remember how many rounds that what did it go the whole I think 10 it went, or 12 I think or 15 or well, 12
0: probably because no no it was a tight it was a it was a light heavyweight title fight it wasn't a, it wasn't a heavyweight title fight but it went to 15 rounds I'm pretty sure but that was 1959 or so. So flash forward now to 66 you're in New York. I'm now in New York and the Mets are the new team on the block. And I was amused by their stumblebum qualities. I remember when Casey Stengel said, "Can anyone here play this game?" <laughs> and, and so I had a kind of—I would call it a Manhattan snobbery about the Mets. That was the outer boroughs team. Uh-huh. The Yankees were the Manhattan team in Bronx. But uh, I was too much of a cultural snob to, to adopt them. So I paid sort of attention to them now we get to 1969 and i am working on the first political campaign where i had anything beyond a manning a phone desk kind of role which is john lindsay running for reelection. election as mayor as new mayor york. of new york and john lindsay had done in the eyes of his followers like me a spectacular job in the late 60s of keeping new york from boiling over in race riots where every other city was having one. Right.
1: As um, as nearby as Newark.
0: As nearby as Newark, indeed. And I thought he'd done a fantastic job. And I also, the big issue in the re-election was something called the Civilian Complaint Review Board. And I had, until my friend Bill McCuddy recently introduced me to the wonderful Bill Bratton, ah. I confess I have a visceral dislike of the cops. I don't think they're to be Bill trusted. Bill Bratton was the
1: commissioner in Boston, New York, and Los Angeles. All
0: three cities in which I lived, most of them while he was commissioner, at least part of the time. And I later realized, like everything in life, there are two schools of thought, and he represented the good side of policing, this year, yeah. the clear professional side. But it's now 1969, and Lindsay is up against someone who probably only I can remember. Mario Procaccino was the Republican and and he, he pretty would, sure
1: he didn't win. Well, I don't know much about nineteen sixty eight. He came. Uh, he, he was really?
0: absolutely in the lead through early October. Lindsay was
1: not beloved for Lindsay everything. Lindsay was he,
0: hated by everyone who was an ethnic New Yorker and uh, in those days ethnic other than black, let's uh-huh. say. And every the Italian Americans, the Irish Americans, the outer borough subway riders hated Lindsay. because he was an upper east side kind he was of. a glamorous upper east side uh-huh. uh, yale wasp uh, got it etc and he was just exa- and and he was a liberal who they saw as anti-police because he was pro civilians in that the the review board was to deal with the brutally negative way in which the police tended to treat black citizens mm-hmm. um which was perfectly fine with certain members of the, of the unwashed public, but it wasn't with blacks and us smart-ass Upper East Side liberals. Right. Um, and uh, or I, was, I was at that point a, a Hell's Kitchen liberal. Well, That was a very special group. There weren't too many of us. <laughs> <laughs> and it's now 1969 and miraculously, the Mets who were only one or two years off their role as the stumble bums of the National League miraculously win the pennant. And so it's now, they are in the World Series. And other people have said this, is not an original thought of mine, but I think I still remember. John Lindsay got reelected narrowly. It was a three-way race because John Markey of Staten Island ran as a conservative and split the Republican, the right-wing vote. He got elected because the Mets won the pennant, the World (laughs) Series, not the pennant, sorry. They won the World Series, and there was such an aura of good feeling when three weeks later people went to the polls that Lindsay was forgiven for being a blue-blooded wasp aristocrat. Uh, whom and he, on his
1: watch, they won. So in a way, he was yeah, sort it, of responsible. It, it, rubbed, it rubbed off on him. So are I, you a Mets fan now after '69? Or no, I never still... became I
0: never became a Mets fan because I thought they were there was something crude about Mets fans. <laughs> Now, some people say, well, that's a rather snobbish remark. And I said, but I'm a snob. I said, I confess. And so I I remained, uh, I had the Red Sox in the American League and in the National League. I had the Cubs, but they didn't matter ever. So that didn't come into play. But it's now 1981. I've been working at Warner for seven, eight years. And I'm now head of acquisitions was my title. But it was a slightly phony title because Steve Ross, the chairman, he decided which companies we would buy and whether how much we would pay, etc. My job was to propose ideas for,
1: for us to acquire. You didn't, at the, up to that point, own any interest in any sports
0: teams? No, wrong. Okay. Oh, we did? We owned the Cosmos. Oh, the, 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 the uh, indoor soccer team? Outdoor, please. We had 75,000 people at Giant Stadium. <laughs> and it was, that was when we, we had brought Steve Ross. He thought in a different way than other people. He went to the Erdogan brothers, Nesui and Ahmed, who were having grown up partly in Turkey. They were wild soccer, or they would call it football fans. And he went to them and said, Look, we own this little team, it's meaningless. The, 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 the games took place on Randall's Island and got 5,000 uh, viewers. He said, who's the most famous soccer player in the world? They said, well, that's easy, Pelé. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you'd ever met him. Oh, I'm yeah. sure that's oh, coming. Oh, yes, it's okay. coming. So he said to Nessui, I believe it was, so why don't we go and hire Pelé? They said, Steve, everyone's tried. He is devoted to his native Brazil. He will never leave. He regards it as he's a national treasure, etc. And Steve said, well, based on what you've told me, I doubt he's appealable to on the grounds of money. So I'm going to think of a different way to attract him. And he, he deputized the Erdogans to go to Brazil and say, you have the chance to be the ambassador of soccer to the biggest market in the world that doesn't exist in, the United States. If you come here, you can make us into a soccer-loving country like every other country in the world. That appealed to him. And oh. he was at the twilight of his career anyway as, a, as an active player, but he was still had only recently been in the World Cup games, and so he, wasn't, he was nowhere. He, he, he could have retired, but he wasn't
1: actually close to it. I think I knew about him from like American Express commercials and things that he did in this country where he was shown as one of the world's greatest right. players, but he was endorsing different stuff. Now that was Warner well, throwing the door open for him. Well to come. we did
0: we did a little test before we offered him millions of dollars, obviously, to play on a team that was already losing serious money anyway. We had polling done by some polling organization worldwide polling not america wow. who is the most famous person in the world and, and how many people were named as by people number 1 ali muhammad ali okay good number 2 pelé really number 3 the pope that's that's how that's that's how it came out we know what team he plays for <laughs> well i'm not 100 sure okay okay you, you you walked into that one <laughs> at least i know what some of his his, his priests do but <laughs> so anyway see how
1: easily we digress right exactly so yeah. pele comes to new york and plays Pe- for the cosmos pele i didn't even remember that
0: oh yes and the first game How'd the other
1: cosmos take that well they, there was a very similar storyline in Ted Lasso last year right. where they hired the biggest right.
0: guy Well, this person who was most put out of it was called I want to say not Messi, because that's the other thing He, he was a, a very good looking Long Island resident who was a soccer player um, so they they plus. they butt heads: Well, no, he just got eclipsed by boy oh, right. and. The honor of playing with Pelé was so great that nobody nobody minded. <laughs> Although I mentioned once to a friend of mine, a lovely, lovely man, a New York, long, long dead, New York Times reporter named Tom Buckley, had covered the Vietnam War for the Times, and I said was when I was talking about soccer. Knowing me to be a desultory sports fan at best, said soccer. What do you know about soccer? I said, Oh, don't you know, Warner owns the Cosmos. He said. The entire cosmos? <laughs> Isn't that taking corporate acquisition programs a bit far?
1: But in his defense, that would be the first assumption. Yeah. And and the soccer team would be like the eighth <laughs> thing you thing would think thought of. of. But well, uh, did Pele pay off? I mean, did, oh, did the did, well, did he, they still play at Randall's Island after he showed up, or did they move it to like a giant stadium? Yeah, that's what and I And we have had seventy
0: five thousand people. There was one game he played in where we only got 50,000, the, but the, next, the second one, it was like the weather was perfect, whatever, It got filled, filled the place, and it was truly exciting. Was uh, this getting network
1: coverage? Was ABC running no, this? on that, a, the, that, the, that was the problem, a problem, the right?
0: Pro- we believed, as it turned out incorrectly, that once every American kid in school was playing soccer, that would be the making of the sport. We didn't realize, no. It's television that's making of the sport. And soccer, given its rhythms, does not allow for the frequent breaks that commercials need. Mm. And so mm. you would, if you, if you took the breaks, that you could do, uh, tape delay, but in the days when people would listen to the radio or something and know what result. was happening, it, right. it just didn't work.
1: Uh, that, I have a comedian uh, friend who says you can go to a soccer game, and if you go to the bathroom and you hear everybody cheering, you've missed the whole season cuz yeah, yeah, right. 1-0 is generally how those a lot of those
0: Yeah, end. exactly. Yeah. And that's um well there's also the fact that most people don't know this but until America adopted soccer there was no such thing as a shootout. They were perfectly happy with ties. Oh yeah, right. Not right. not, not Amer- American the old line <laughs> about ties is like kissing your sister. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, there was some modification in the rules, which were first adopted for the North American Soccer League, and then, and then became became a worldwide thing where shootouts. Entered. Was our
1: was our uh, field size the same size as the European? Oh, one? Yeah. we oh, yeah. all yeah. that yeah. was to regulation. Yeah. All that was to regulation. And how um, many seasons did Pele play for? I'm going to go with a
0: four or five. Oh, he did. Like yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we also had Franz Beckenbauer. Kaiser Franz from Germany, and we had Giorgio Canalia from Italy who was the greatest Italian star, all of whom had been bought in the twilight of their careers.
1: For their name value. For
0: their name value and their playing value because they were playing against a level of competition miles below what they were used to. I see. So they were still stars here. And they were accused by their, their native lands of selling out, which they said, Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, Steve thought that, correct, Steve Ross, I'm speaking of the head of Warner, that all discussions and disagreements over money are infinitely compromisable. It's a number. Uh-huh. You just got to find the one that's not so big that you can't pay it and big enough to get what you want. So when he was told, oh, you'll never persuade Pele to come to this country, he said, I'd, It was the patriotic thing, and it it worked. Lovely guy, by the way. He seemed,
1: I mean, every Uh, time I saw an interview with him, he seemed like like the nicest guy in the world. At
0: one point, on the downslope of my career, my office moved from the valued 29th floor to the slightly less valued 27th floor, and my office then abutted directly Pelé's. And I would we'd sit and have a sandwich, etcetera, You know, and and limited limited conversation because I felt guilty about sort of taking up his his valuable time. That smile was a mile wide. And he yeah, just, he had a great just, smile. Just, I'm
1: fascinated by the fact that he was playing for your sports team and had an office at the oh, at Time Warner. Let me tell you, he had as a, kind I, of an ambassador he, or kind of a
0: no time in the picture yet, strictly Warner. Time came in. Oh yeah. Time okay. Came, time came in in 1990. Um, he was ambassador, and he also, we had a company called Licensing Corp of America. Pele was a major asset that we oh, see. A, a, a So boy, he had his own yeah. assistants and a oh, little, little yeah, staff, yeah, and yeah, he was yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, for him, do you know what the great advantage of living in America was? He could walk out on the street without being mobbed. Oh. Everywhere else he would be... Even
1: after four seasons and even of uh, being yeah, here yeah. In the, he would
0: be recognized but right. not mobbed. Right. And so that was to him such a relief <laughs> after what he'd had to live with for 20 years in Brazil where he couldn't walk out the door. And he was very sweet. I'm going to say something now that's wildly indiscreet and you'll probably edit it out but I'm going to say it and give, well, you, I doubt give it. you the choice. After Steve Ross died, which was 1992... And after a decent interval of like six months, his widow decided that she was ready to um, no longer be on the sidelines in the game of love. (laughs) And she decided she had a person in mind for her first post-marital, with her first Widowhood romance. Congratulations, Roger. And she? No, not me. <laughs> See, that would that would have never but, happened. But you on either you had it. a phone number for someone she wanted, or she you, wanted Pele.
1: Yeah, well, she invited him
0: up to their palatial seventeen-room apartment at Seven Forty Park, and told him that uh, she was going to give him this great gift, and he stunned her by saying, "No, thank you," and headed for the nearest exit. Well, and, and she was how old and he was how old? And was he married at the time? Yes, but I don't think that ever came up. <laughs> <laughs> she would have been 52 and still very good looking. Uh-huh. The only thing wrong with her was her character. Uh, <laughs> Is she still with us today? No. Well, she's, she's about five or ten miles from here in East Hampton. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And if she's
1: yeah. listening, we'll say, obviously, hello. Well, no,
0: I would say, karma will get you, Courtney. <laughs> okay, fine. Right, because... This uh, sounds like its own episode. Well, I was called in 1993 or 4 by a writer who later became become a good friend and, in fact, lives now in Bridgehampton, named Michael Schneerson. And Michael was a writer for Vanity Fair. And he said, Roger, I'm, we're doing a piece on Courtney Sale, Raw, Steve's Widow, and I'm told you know her fairly well. I said, well, I know her fairly intimately. I don't know about well. Uh, and he said, would you be willing to talk? And I said, well, I'm willing to talk about whether I'm willing to talk. So we met at, of course, three guys, the most popular Upper East Side diner di- uh, yeah. diner with classic, classic yeah, diner food. And they sat down and and I said, Michael, let me ask you something. Is this going to be a hit job? Is this going to be an attack on Courtney? He said, absolutely not. We're going to be totally fair. I got up and said, well, then I'm out of here. (laughs) And he said he'd never been so stunned by an interview subject before. I said, because I'm only interested in helping you on a hit job.
1: Sit right down, he said. Well, that that makes me curious about why you would send your friend and former sandwich-sharing mate Pele to the gallows. In other words, you knew what she wanted when she called you and said, can you... Get Pele up to 740
0: Park. Oh no, he, she didn't use me as an. Oh, she didn't. she didn't. Oh, 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 oh God no. forbid! She barely took. She, I was part of what she called the help. I said. I said anyone who worked for her husband was considered uh, her personal servant. So she
1: reached out to him somehow, some other way, and he had no idea what he was going up there for.
0: Knowing her, she had her secretary call him because Uh she would, even Pele, she wouldn't deign to dial the phone herself. So she'd come a long way from when she was Hugh Carey's mistress.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will consult with lawyers, and if they have given the thumbs up, you've just listened to a fascinating story about uh, Steve Ross's widow. Widow, well, so... so, uh, uh, how long did, how long did uh, you guys own the Cosmos and what
0: happened to that team? Well, I left Warner in 85 and at that point they did for a number of years. But I think once the false bubble that we created with Pelé and Beckenbauer and so forth burst and it went back to 20,000, 30,000 ethnics watching it at minor league parks around the country. The, the, the great moment I'd had with Pelé was 1982 and the cosmos have won the right to play a san diegos soccer team for the north american soccer league championship and i was invited to fly down to san diego from los angeles not very long not a long flight but with my then girlfriend who had a 12 year old soccer mad son and I was trying to convince her to marry me, ultimately unsuccessfully. But um, and I, I told her she should ask the kids their opinion of our getting married. That I oh, do not do that. You've bought them, and they're they're bought and paid for. Because <laughs> I took I took young Luke, a wonderful kid, who's ended up having a f- fantastic career for the UN, down to, to fly down with Steven Spielberg on the plane, and we watched we watched the game, the Cosmos win. And he ends up literally holding on to Pele's hips in a conga line in, in, the, in the locker room. Sorry, after after that we win the game, and um, I said, um, Luke. Go tell your mother what she's missing out on not marrying me. Uh, she turned me down. So the,
1: the locker room from age five turned into kind of a ritual
0: for you. If you could get invited back after a game to yeah, that, that's yeah, where yeah. the action that, was. that's where the action was. Uh, well, they didn't they certainly didn't invite me on the field. <laughs> well, I, however that's not quite true. Well, wait, I want to make one point. When you say ethnics went,
1: you don't mean that in a derogatory way. You mean that Italians went to watch Italians play and Brazilians went to watch Brazilians play, but it never grew into this big national if you, pastime. If you, if
0: you were more than one generation removed from Italy, Brazil, Ecuador, no etc., you, Africa, you had no interest right. in soccer. That and, was it. Okay. It was only those. However, now it's um, 1981... And in my work for Warner as coming up with businesses for us to acquire and researching them and recommending them, I get a call, and I can be very precise about the date because of other events. It's April or May of 1981. I get a call from an investment banker from Lehman Brothers. And, Roger, have you heard that Getty is being acquired by Gulf Oil? or Texaco, I forget which. I said, yes, I read the Wall Street Journal. I'm, I'm aware of this. He said, well, they own some little thing called ESPN, or at least they own 40% of it. And the board has told them to get rid of everything they own that's outside the oil and gas business. They want to be pure. And therefore, they are willing to consider an offer for it. Would you possibly be interested? And I'd say, well, for minority interest. I'm not sure that would work. but..." Let me, let me kick it around, and I'll, I'll talk to Steve. Okay. Again, to remind
1: people, SPN for sale was 1981.
0: And 40% of it was for sale. Another 40% was owned by ABC, and another 20% was owned by Hearst. Right.
1: And... Hearst had television stations too at that yes. time. They did, yes, yeah. Tom. Little mm-hmm. ones and they, well, but, a, Randolph, but a network.
0: William Randolph started the diversification efforts at, at the Hearst Corporation. <laughs> they, <sighs> it was, he did it with first with radio. Yeah. And so I go rushing over to his secretary. I said, "Carmen, Carmen, is is he alone?" She said, "No, he's not." I said, "Tell me the minute he's free. I've got to talk to him." This is, I go bursting in, I said, Steve, you won't believe this, but we have a chance to buy 40% of ESPN, and we don't have to worry about being shut out as a minority interest, because the 40% that's owned by ABC, 20% is owned by your very good friend Richard Berlin, who runs Hearst Corporation, so together you, you guys get in a room and work things out, and we'll have control. And I said, and it's, they want $40 million for the 40% valuing ESPN at $100 million. It was at some point in the 19, early 2000s, after being bought by Disney, it had a valuation of $17 billion, okay? The whole thing. So 40%, 40% would have been $17 right, billion, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to exaggerate it. Right. No, no. <laughs> and so Steve says, with a patient tone of voice Roger you're not a real sports fan. And you don't understand something about sports in America. They are not national. They're regional. The devotion is, if you're from New England, it's the Red Sox or Patriots. If you're from California, and so forth and so forth. And I don't think a national network would work. And besides, we have Ali Sherman, the former coach of the New York Giants, building regional networks for us around cable station in Cincinnati, a cable station in, in Minneapolis, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I said, Steve, I understand that.
1: And back in 1981, to, to cut you off for a second, there was really only Monday night football and maybe baseball. Well, I think there was a
0: Sunday game. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah Sunday yeah, afternoon yeah, yeah, game. Yeah, right,
1: yeah. And ESPN at the time was just doing regional sports stuff or college well, it, no, stuff? No, small... it
0: was doing anything it could possibly get the rights to. I see. But it, it's the gating item for it was cable subscribers. That's the only way you could get it. And in 1981, cable was not in its infancy, but it was in its young adulthood. Right. Okay. And so it was not yet the powerhouse that it became. Nor had ESPN be able to dictate the price of its coverage to the cable companies because you could not be in the cable business if you didn't offer ESPN. If you didn't Okay. Have it,
1: okay. So, but in a strange way. Steve Ross was right, but then he was ultimately proven very wrong. Well, let me
0: give you his whole argument, because I am bedeviled by my incredible memory for the spoken word. He said, as I say, with a patient tone of voice, Roger, you're not a real sports fan, so you don't understand. He said, there are only three truly national teams in America that have a national following. I said, oh, you mean the Yankees? He said, yes. I said, oh, and you mean the Dallas Cowboys? He said, yes. I said, what's the third? Notre Dame football. Those are the three teams. I hadn't thought of college. And he was right, he, Oh, in terms of ratings as, as or in terms of- Almost always he was right, wow. almost, except in the conclusion here. So he said, I think we're gonna do much better with regional networks, which by the way, was the way Fox and others did go, and it was quite successful. I said, look, can we do both? What's wrong with covering our bets with looking at this? And I, you know, and it, it was the argument. Well, it was a minority interest, and um, Steve operated to his great credit out of passion. If he liked an idea but didn't love it, he wasn't. He didn't act on it because he liked. He liked too much, and he. But he had to love something, and that was part of his success. And so I, I sort of grumpily accepted this because I saw. I, I saw what the potential was for this network.
1: And the this was no, we're not buying ESPN for $40 million.
0: No, we're not. It's worse than that. We're not going to explore it. Because uh-huh. once I took it to Steve, it then had to go to a committee of which I was part and others were part and Steve was part. But it, Steve had a very simple approach. Um, he, he didn't run a dictatorship, but he didn't run a democracy either. <laughs> Everyone was absolutely entitled to say whatever they wanted. Except there was one moment I'll never forget, when Al Sonoff, a very sweet guy, said, why don't we put something up to a vote? Steve looked at him like he had three heads and said, <laughs> vote? What do you think, it's a democracy? <laughs> <laughs> so, but it was such a gentle dictatorship. It was such a benevolent dictatorship that you signed up willingly. I mean, there was times in my life in the 1980s where I said, and they pay me too? Right. It was such fun every day.
1: And by and large, for anyone who hasn't been paying attention in this podcast, Steve Ross made a lot of good, smart decisions that built the company into a big... I joined
0: sale. I joined the company in September of 1974. The stock was then trading at around 10. Due to subsequent splits and, and spinoffs and things, its effective price then was number, was one. And by the time of the Time Warner merger... Anyone who bought it $1 adjusted for splits was getting $100. You made 100-fold on your money trusting Steve Ross. So that was something that one one did. However, sadly, ESPN never happened. But the next thing that I suggested did happen, which is we were fighting for the Pittsburgh cable franchise, very lucrative, against Cablevision and a couple other companies and we were being criticized. I remember the leader of the local thing was a Catholic priest who said, we don't want outsiders, we want local people running the cable company. And I said, Steve, I said, we have a chance to become local. So what do you mean? I said, why don't we go to, and I'll fill in the name later, there's a lovely family who owned the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I think they also owned uh, part of a, of the Cincinnati, whatever they, they were not Marge shot. Not, not, no, no, no okay. she owned the she owned the cup. The, red, the Cincinnati Reds. Oh, okay. No, it was a, a man's name and very, but they were g- gentlemen in a sport that used to be only gentlemen and now is only billionaires. And I said, why don't we, you know, go to them and propose, since they are such were famously honorable, decent people, that will be happy to be their minority partner and buy 30, 40 percent of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Well, it happened. Ah. Now it turned out that Pittsburgh was a particularly unfortunate franchise, not from its lack of baseball skills, but from its lack of the key thing which makes every sports team profitable. They didn't own the parking. The park, right, the parking. Really? That's, the, that's, that's it? What, that's where the money is. Wow. Yep. Uh, first of all, it's been Even not, to this day? To this day, more money. Really? Yeah, ticket sales, not as important. Parking, very important. And so they didn't own... In fact, I never forgot, there was a wonderful man named Clark Kerr, who was the chancellor of the University of California at Berkeley in the 50s and 60s. And he said, "Being the head of a modern university consists of three things: I worry about athletics for the graduates, I worry about sex for the undergraduates, and I worry about parking for the faculty. <laughs> Those are the three things you have to take care of."
1: <laughs> so you bought Pittsburgh. You bought so we the forty
0: percent, and
1: did they have a winning year? That year as you recall or it didn't matter? They were
0: in contention. Uh-huh. I think that's what I would recall. I could look back and see but the fact is that um, It got us the franchise or we got the franchise how much of a role that played is Conjectural, but I think it cut it, it stopped the Opposition which was a consortium of local rich guys mm-hmm. from calling us outsiders <laughs> and that was the, the point of it and after about three or four years we sold it back to the other 60% or whatever. The other 60%, the, the whatever, other 60% yeah. it was a very nice, very nice man. Um, and uh, in business, it's very, very important to pick your partners. You have to have people you trust and respect because partnership makes you liable for whatever they do. You can disown a, an associate, you can't disown a partner. Right, and. Um, your
1: father respected Hyman Roth, Yeah, your yeah. father did business with but, Hyman Roth, but he
0: never trusted Hyman never Roth. never trusted, but however, I remember, speaking of Hyman Roth, um, the Fortune 500 list had just come out in around 1981 or 2, and I notice, I look at the listing, and we, for the first time, Warner had made the top 50. But I also noticed that we were several points ahead of a famous American... Company and I go into a meeting and there's about seven or eight of us, including Steve. And I said, "I've got great news. We're bigger than U.S. Steel." <laughs> <laughs> well, none of them got the reference. That's funny. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So we failed with that. We succeeded with the pirates, and it did. It did what it was supposed to do. And at that point, I've now moved to California. I have not changed my allegiances because to me. The Dodgers were simply the West Coast version of the New York Yankees, unworthy of support because they had bought their way into into prominence. So I think I went... A, to... a lovely stadium, though. Well, I've I, been I, there. Well, I, I've been there recently. I took my daughter there two years ago, three years ago, and uh, we had a very nice time. It's lovely. And. Uh, has great parking (laughs) but uh, of course they displaced thousands and thousands of hispanic americans to build chavez ravine Uh, at least they kept the name chavez for a while (laughs) Um, so now at this point i'm pretty much a spectator with regards sports except for one horse racing Mm. my father had been a lifelong devotee of horse racing we moved frequently in my childhood, but there was a trunk that always went with us, which contained every copy of The Blood Horse, the weekly magazine. for Like horse the forum, breaks.
1: like the racing forum that said?
0: It, no, it was for breeders. It wasn't for oh. Oh. You know, Obviously, the information in it. My father claimed, and to my knowledge correctly, that he never, ever lost money at the track. Really? He said he followed certain rules about this. One, never place a bet unless you're at the track. This will keep you from making foolish bets mm. and betting too frequently. Because so, you can't go to the track that often. He said, too, he never bet the undercard races. He only bet the featured races. Because he said, those are horses whose history and, and genealogy I can follow and assess, etc. And, and he was right. And he would say, at one point, actually when he was living in New Orleans, we went out to the fairgrounds, which is a notoriously crooked track. And he said, look, in the fourth race, this horse is a chalk bet. That's better's talk for a sure thing. He said, I would put some money on such and such a horse. I said, well, dad, that's not exactly new information. The horse is going off at two to five. It's uh-huh. a solid favorite. He said, well, I still think he's going to win. I said, well, I didn't come to the track to make bank interest. My father who always had the last and the best word said, Son, in my experience, the bank doesn't pay you the year's interest in one minute and fifty seven seconds. <laughs> That's a good line. I said, That's ha- funny. You- I said you have a point. Okay.
1: So, so you got to Del Mar or you got to where were you going in California when you were out there if you wanted oh, to see a horse race?
0: Only the one to the east. Um, the big the big one, Santa Anita. So it started I, I, only I did not, so when you would go I didn't like Hollywood Park. Uh huh. It had been ruined for me by of all people um, no, oh, the, the famous the famous comedian who did, did sort of dirty comic things and not not Lenny Bruce, but um, not, anyway, not Buddy Hackett, and no, uh, no, he did. Um, but he had a, a one of his riffs was he did a song about say a pseudo song of um psychopathia sexualis. No, it was Lenny Bruce. It wasn't uh-huh. Bruce. Psychopathia Sexualis. I'm in love with a horse from Dallas. And as we lie there in the dark, I think of her former lovers, now running at Hollywood Park. <laughs> wow. Now, since I say occasional negative things about my father, I have to give him enormous credit. Not for much, so much for his instruction on how to bet a horse race, although that's been helpful. But when I was in my sophomore year of high school, he came back from New York with the Lenny Bruce record. Uh, which was not what the average father gave the average yeah, high schooler. Right. I remember that it had a picture of Lenny Bruce on a picnic blanket on a beautiful grass lawn, and then you realize it was a cemetery. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the actor who portrays him in The Marvelous
1: Mrs. Maisel is quite good. Oh. And that series just ended, and he was an integral part of the, of
0: the fifth season. Well, the actor who played him in the movie, Lenny, Right. Is I'm trying to think of the Dustin name Dustin Hoffman. Oh, it was Dustin yeah. Hoffman. I yeah. thought, okay, yeah, yes, yeah, so Dustin Hoffman yeah. did did a fabulous job. Um, however, Bob Fosse directed that. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, my father continued to school me in how to bet. On the occasion we went to the track together, he didn't understand my reluctance to bet favorites, because he said, "Have you noticed something about favorites? They tend to win." <laughs> yeah, okay, I liked long shots. I was, you know. Uh, Could I, he, he pick exactas
1: and trifectas, and, or he didn't get involved in the exotic bets, he said?
0: The, the c- contempt that he had for junk exotic bets <laughs> is that no, no, he said, you're gambling, you're not handicapping. And so he was a handicapper. Uh, and uh, however, I got slight comeuppance when it's 1992, the derby is being run, and at that point, I had my house in Santa Barbara, and you could go to the fairgrounds. It was called the Earl Warren Fairgrounds to the horror of all the right-wingers in Santa Barbara who hated that, that name, but that's what it was called. And they would have electronic showings of the major horse races and with betting there on-site. Right. You couldn't, you couldn't bet off-site, but you could bet on-site.
1: I think I was at the Kentucky Derby in 1992. Did you have a horse in that yes. one? Yes, were-
0: it was a horse called C something, not seahorse, see, see something, and it was owned by Paul Mellon. And my father advised me on the betting, and again, he hated junk bets, exactas and things. I, looking for the killing, did. Uh, like, I liked them, and I was putting together three or four horses to pool in the exactas and mix and match kind of thing, and he said, now, don't overlook the field. There was like 20 horses running in the Derby that yeah, year, and yeah. the field, because they only have 16 betting slots or something, meant the four weakest nags in the, f- right. in the thing were.
1: It's a called a coupling. Yeah, uh, they put yeah, them all right, into right. one. You get, you
0: get four, you get four right. chances for it, and the r- odds reflect it, but they still were very sp- high on these sure. things, because they were considered, every one of them was considered a no-hoper. My father said, don't overlook the field. There's one or two horses in there that could surprise. So in my putting together, I had three horses that I liked, including the winner, and I added the field to it. I wheeled them. Right. I ended up making...
1: Put the favorite over them. Right,
0: a mix mix and match kind Uh of thing. And I ended up making about 30 bets that I was going to bet $5 each on. Uh When I went there, I looked at my cash, uh, and I realized that I wasn't gonna have enough cash to pay my housekeeper on um, the next day if I lost the entire thing. So I cut back from a $5 exacta to $3 exacta times 30-some some bets. Well, I won. Huh? It was $1,500. No, excuse me, sorry. It was a little over $5,000. Wow. On a $3 bet. Wow. And I thought, oh Jesus, it would've been 8000 if I'd gone for the five bucks. but. Um, and then I found out that they couldn't pay me, because if it's over $5,000 dollars, you had to have show your social Security card. It's a social security card. I got it in Toledo when I was 16. I haven't looked at it since. I don't I have no idea where. I had to go on Monday to the offices in Santa Barbara, the Social Security Department, get a new card mailed to me, and then get my goddamn $5,000 dollars. I was mightily pissed. However, I was a fellow victor who had won the trifecta that year. Was a wonderful journalist who wrote the book Cannon something first name Cannon, first name something Cannon. He wrote a book on Ronald a biography of Ronald Reagan called Ronald Reagan: The Role of a Lifetime, mm-hmm. uh, and he had followed him ever since he was governor in California. And it was a very very insightful book. So we we bonded over our, our being fellow victors here in this uh, thing. Now, I call my father excited. I reach him at his bridge club in LA, where he was then living, and I have him called away from the bridge table, which meant something important. And I said, Dad, Dad, I won the exacta. I'm going to get $5,000 for a $3 bet. He said, well, I'm happy for you, but I'm really happy for Paul Mellon. (laughs) He's been trying to win the Derby for years. This is his first time. I said, Dad, do you know Paul Mellon? He said, no, I know who he is. I said, well, I'm your son. Can't you be happy for me without being happy for some multimillionaire you've never met? So before that had occurred, it's 1986. I'm still living in New York, I haven't moved to LA. My father's coming in on a week-long business trip. And I said, Dad, how would you like to go up to Saratoga and see the the Withers, which is the big race at the at Saratoga? And I've got uh, my friend, Caesar Kimmel, as a horse in the race, and he's gonna, will you'll be able to get up at six in the morning and go with him to watch the horses work out and so forth, and go down
1: I, to the paddock and paddock see them and before all that the, thing. Yeah, and he, yeah,
0: yeah. He, he thinks he he thinks he learned something from looking at them. No, a lot of people think you should he, see he, the horse he, for all, for, the horse. all I, for all I know he may, but it came to the final race that day at the of the Withers. That uh, was uh, after the Withers itself had been run, and he looks at this race, and I see there are only six horses running. So nobody was very long odds, but there were at least one or two at eight to one. And he said, well, who are you betting in this race? And I said, well, I'm betting so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. He said, well, how did you pick them? I said, they're the longest odds. I'm down $800 for the day, and only the exacta, on that's gonna get me out here a winner. It's the last race of the day, and the last race after that, we're heading back to the city the next day. And so my father asked how I'm betting it. When I tell him I've chosen the two longest odds horses and boxed them in an exact, uh, um he said, why would you pick those two horses? There are four horses there which have a chance. There are two which have no chance. You've chosen the no chance just because you want to make ill-gotten gains. I said, no. I said, I'm, I have my methods, and they may be, they may be odd. And that's when he used the line, I hope you don't confuse what you're doing with handicapping. I said, no, it's called gambling. (laughs) And so I watch to my unbelievable delight as my horses finish 1-2. I am now looking at a $5 bet at a payoff of around $1,500. Wow. And but I'm, there's an objection. I'm jumping up and down. My father says, uh, look up there. And it's going inquiry, inquiry. Oh, a no. A steward's inquiry. Uh. I said, Dad, I don't care. I've got them one, two, or two, one. I don't care which one finishes. He said, you do if one's sent down to number, number eight, because that's what will happen if, if, they, if they uphold the inquiry. And we sat there for 10 minutes. I was dealing not with the tension that comes from waiting to hear if I was gonna make five fifteen hundred dollars which wasn't going to change my life but would be nice my I'm to have to deal with the fact that my father is openly rooting for me to lose <laughs> I said dad
1: I got a 10 minute inquiry now for people listening who have no idea what's happening when uh, a horse is bothered or bumps into another horse uh, the jockey can claim that they were... Uh, interfered with interfered with during the race. And it doesn't happen very often. So uh, for your father to point with glee at the at the word right. inquiry blinking right. uh, and, and I've never ever seen one that lasted ten minutes. Usually ten they, minutes they the look guy. at the was, video right, and they yeah. just go yes or no and nope. they decide they lasted
0: ten minutes. And when I point out to my father that I don't care whether it's two one or one two, I win either way. He said, <laughs> not if it gets sent down to number eight. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> uh well, inquiry denied, thing upheld, and I'm there and my father said, you know, well, are we you know, he was worried that we're going to have to wait around for me to collect my money. I said I said, "Dad, we're going to wait around for me to get my money." He said, "Did you have your social security card?" No, he, I was under 5000, yeah, so yeah, it was okay. I know, I know. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so we, he but he was actually grumpy because his his sense of and this is not to criticize him he he had a sense of morality about these things mm-hmm. i didn't earn that money i was gambling i wasn't the two long shots
1: should never have won
0: right exactly. logic
1: was this one and this one should have won not right. those two yeah
0: so anyway uh, and so he said well i hope you don't confuse what you're doing with handicapping i said no i confuse it with winning <laughs> <laughs> so that was why i He always had the last word, but I always got in my attempt at the last word.
1: If none of his stories were about you, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Who the is Roger Smith is recorded in an undisclosed bunker somewhere on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. All opinions are Mr. Smith's own, but everything he says happened because he was there. Bill Bregoli is our producer and editor. I'm Bill McCuddy.
0: And live in a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab, an Electric Cast production. We'll see you there. Electric Cast. Electric Welcome to Tuning Into Sound well-being